Hey, welcome, I'm David Tan, PhD, and for over the past 12 years, I've been helping hundreds of thousands of people in over 87 countries. Attain success, happiness, and fulfillment, and life and love, and welcome to the special new video series on uh, virtues, values, vices, and how that all relates to dating, and how it is actually the key to unlocking uh, success in dating. And this is a video series that was filmed at a private mentoring group uh, meeting. And over the course of that weekend, which was an amazing weekend, uh, I covered some of, some of what I covered was this uh, video series that you're going to see here. Over the past few years, I've been getting a lot of questions that have, pr have prompted the material in this video series. and I wanted to be able to share it to more people. So this is why we've released this video series. Guys who are trying to get better at dating, uh, one of their um, obstacles is learning how to have fun and making others have fun. So once they get that down, the next step is uh, making connections with people and seeing if those people meet their standards. Making connections and see if, seeing if people meet your standards. And along the whole way, from the point at which you're learning to have fun and making others have fun, and then, of course, making connections with people, your standards play come into play. And they're really, really important. And since the very beginning of the time I was teaching dating coaching and now life coaching, standards and values, which, are, which will help you determine your standards, were always um, a necessary component of the curriculum. And from the very beginning, I had sections on values, how to determine your values, how to um, think about how your values relate to your real life and testing your values to find out whether they really are your values and so on. And I found out that so many guys who are having tr trouble with women are at such a low level on the hierarchy of needs that they're just trying to get their needs for very basic needs for security, certainty, for significance, for um, sex, uh, and the physical desire component, trying to just get that handled. In other words, they're so desperate that they're unable to think deeply about values or they just, when they do think about values, it's always at a very superficial level or they just ask me or some guru, what are the values that I should have? Like, tell me my values. When it actually comes time to interacting with a woman, she finds that he's a kiss ass, he's a try hard, he's a codependent nice guy, because he actually doesn't have any values of his own that are um, ones that he's worked out himself. So the big problem underlying all of guys' problems with women is the fact that they don't know what they stand for, what their ideals are, what's really important to them in life. So they just basically say, well, what does a woman want me to be? Or what is that attractive woman, um, what is she attracted to? And I'll take on those values for myself. And that's a really, really bad way of thinking about values. And it actually is a scary thing about that type, that person. Hopefully, it's just that he hasn't been tested yet. But it might be that he lacks a morality. And the only way for out for him is to think deeply about it and to experience the process of developing values for yourself, testing them, honing them, uh, owning them, and then of course reevaluating them over time because we, as we evolve and mature, we change um, our thinking and our priorities and so on. So this whole video series is answering that question of what should my values be and how is that question of values related to dating and dating success? Okay, how are, how are values actually related to dating and dating success? And I propose 
one uh, helpful and healthy way of thinking about values, which comes out of uh, virtue theory and virtue ethics. And uh, it comes from uh, virtue ethics from East and Western historical traditions. So I bring those into play here in this video series. So I hope you enjoy, check it out. Love to know what you think. Please leave a comment, join the private Facebook groups that we've got and just keep in touch. So enjoy the video series. Without further ado, here we go. And all weird and he'd be stiff and wouldn't feel comfortable. And uh, this is because that's associated for him with a persona that he's not used to having. Right. And he's having an internal identity crisis. He's like, this is not me. This is me. And this is, this is happening, right? So a lot of that work of helping you see the shame and the narcissism and the true self is that it releases you from, uh, from this. You can now say, oh, I have many different parts and I can grow this other part, this persona that um, I'm going to use for, I don't know, for business. Maybe it's the boardroom. Maybe it's for pitching VCs. Uh, maybe it's for closing deals. Uh, maybe it's for being daddy and you have to play with your daughter. Or maybe it's um, uh, helping at the charity on the weekends with the old folks home or whatever, right? There are all these different parts of you as well. There's one that's the son, right? Or the, the daughter or, you know, you, with the way you are with your mom or dad or with your brother or sister, right? That's, an, that's also another persona. That persona looks differently, thinks differently, feels differently. And it's if you've inhabited that persona for a long time, it's relatively consistent, right? It coheres. And when you want to develop a persona for another environment, it's the same process that you did as a child or a teenager or in your workplace, creating a new persona. Um, but because dating or mating relationships is triggering all of your old love stuff, Right, your needs for love, connection, and all that, that's from childhood, it's so much weightier, right? so much bigger, right? versus you're in the boardroom, there's not many triggers you know, for business. When you were nine years old, you weren't like looking for business success, so it's easier for you to have that distance, and it's not emotionally triggering for you. But entering a love relationship where you get attached is. So a lot of the work is just helping them see uh, you can create a persona and that means, you know, the way you talk, walk, all that stuff, that can change. You can develop that for a specific purpose. And then um, once they embrace that, I'm developing a persona, it should come easier. The problem is now finally we can understand the virtue issue. There's a growing movements of, you probably heard of these, uh, MGTOW, Men Go Their Own Way, uh, Red Pill, um, uh, what else is there? Oh, incels, <laughs> they're not very big, but um, they're very dangerous, right? So um, incels who will plow down innocent people. And then, of course, as part of that um, is the school shootings by um, disillusioned single men who are bitter about life in general and want to take it out on the most innocent, um, especially including children. I mean, if you are so bitter that you would look for the paragon of innocence to destroy it, you're really fucking bitter. You've really gone over the edge. And a lot of this has to do with, they've all skirted PUA, pick up an artist's uh, movement. They've all dabbled in it because their initial problem is women. So all of these guys, all of their complaints, all of their shit is uh, revolving around um, their failure or lack of perceived success in mating. Okay, so you come to the end and you've now basically prepared this guy because it's like persona work, you can be really successful. He's either going to be 
become, he's either going to become a narcissist if he's successful, or he's going to become um, a, like a, a bitter, disillusioned um, man, a men's rights type of person, right? And you may not think that this is logic, this follows logically, but it will if we're missing the final portion, because all of this up to this point of true self, shame, narcissism, inner child, true self, it's all um, without morality. It's amoral. It's not immoral, but it's amoral. It's besides the morality. It's largely amoral. It's not immoral. It's not moral. It's just amoral. It's separate from the issue of morality, good or bad, right or wrong. Right? It's just taking a guy from uh, having the toxic shame, undoing that, encountering his, his inner child, thereby um, changing his narcissistic uh, behavior so he's not a comp compensating with it, and leading and living as his true self, integrating his parts, right? and, then, um, and then finding out that he can develop a new part for a new purpose, and then developing that, and now what's the end result? The end result that a lot of guys find as they go, that, that I, to my dismay, discovered over the years is the end result that they were looking for after doing all of this therapy and all of this therapeutic work and these guided meditations, the end result that they were looking for to gauge their success and whether they've reached that last stage is, is well, what was the presenting problem? What was the original problem? They weren't getting women. Okay, so now they go through all this, true self, inner child, parts, integration, narcissism, shame, toxic, boom. How do I know I've succeeded in going through this? It's, again, do women like me? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And that got me really thinking like, whoa, weird. Could it be that Hitler could have gone through this process? Everyone likes to take Hitler as an example because it's just so shocking. But you think about it. Could Hitler encounter his inner child? He's like, good Hitler boy. You know, uh, we'll take them down. Yes. Yeah. Instead of like healing his inner child or whatever, it's just like empowering his inner child. And then it becomes a narrative of power. Dudes really respond to the word power in sales letters and headlines and stuff like this. They respond to a lot of self-aggrandizement. And that just, it, it's still now something I'm, I'm just coming to grips with, that instead of fighting it and resisting it, let's work with that. Okay, that's where they're coming from. They're, they're, they just want to get stuff for themselves. Money, women, power, whatever it is. And they're going to use whatever they can. And this evil that they could be, that they might actually be, is there. right? So they could use everything that I give them, no matter how awesome and great it is, uh, for evil ends. right? So, or for bad ends. Um, or for ends that um, I would not have even thought of when I started teaching it. Okay, great. So the last portion is is to counteract that, but also more importantly, they will always end up being bitter. So you take the guy who succeeds, how does he know he succeeds? Now people like him. And he's like the man, he feels significant, <laughs> right? People like him, he feels important, All right? That's, that's the narcissist, right? Straight up, You're, and the thing is, as you know, um, we can always take that away from you, right? The world will take it away from you, people can take it away from you, I can take it away from you, you know, I've given them example many times of, I could just destroy you if that's you. I could destroy you by, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks, hire a bunch of models for like 15 minutes. They go around you, turn you on, all that stuff. They make you think like you're the man at the club, and suddenly they spit at you, throw drinks at you, throw ice at you, walk away, and everyone sees it. Now you're shamed, right? Destroyed. Because you got your significance from outside shit. 
right? You don't feel significant if, if you look like crap and you are at the bottom of the gutter, you still, you don't feel significant. Right? Your significance is based on external stuff. That's the narcissist. So even if he succeeds, he's still going to be empty, right? Sort of like the alcoholic who hasn't come down off the bender yet. He's still on the bender. He doesn't know how bad he actually is because he's just taken more alcohol. I've done this example so many times, right? So that, that might be you, but the more common scenario is they fail. That's the, that's the MGTOW, right? They got screwed over by some woman, right? They got raped in a divorce, okay? Or um, uh, they got rejected real hard. They got cheated on, and that would be the red pill guys, right? They got cheated on. So what are they going to do? They're going to cheat on them, those fucking whores, right? I mean, they're going to line up a whole bunch of these women and treat them like crap. And that'll, that'll get their pride back and their ego, right? That's red pill. And uh, you could just be incel, which is just like, screw the whole system. I hate guys who are good with women, too. I hate them all. I hate babies. I hate everything. I hate all that is good because it screwed me over because I didn't get to have sex. <laughs> okay, that's the incel. But all of this is just coming out of failure with mating and women. All right, so they, either they fail and they're bitter. That's just obvious, uh, though it may be less obvious for those who are good with good at picking up chicks. Like some of these red pill guys are good at just picking up chicks because they disrespect them. That attracts the codependent female, right? And there are a lot of them and they think that they're succeeding there. They're just giving each other their neuroses, right? And they're matching there. Um, and, but their lives are empty. Their lives are bitter. And that's, that's, the bit, that's if they fail. <laughs> but they could also succeed and think everything's hunky-dory, but they're actually just building a house on, on sand Right? And then the, the uh, tide comes in and washes it all away. So it's just a matter of time for the tide to come in. The only thing that can save you is my, the final chapter of my book. I don't know if it's just be one chapter or if it would be a whole part. Right? <laughs> and now I was like, whoa, you know, because like, I kept reading all of these uh, uh, guides on how to write books and stuff. And uh, there's, like, there's conflicting advice. Tim Ferriss gave a really good piece of advice, which is write the book that you needed to read or that you need to read. And, or, or write the book that you're, about content that you're so passionate about that you'd write it even if no one read it. And when I got to that last part, I'm like, yes. That's what I could geek out about for, for a whole lifetime. In fact, I made a whole career around it as a professor in moral philosophy. And now I can see why um, a lot of the um, success that I had in this area that was quick, a lot quicker than anyone else I had been associated, like, that I knew, it also explained why it was easier for me to bounce back from things. And, you know, I've been at this for over 12 years now in this area of, of either a dating coach or life coach. And I know people who started this journey before I did. So they had gotten in, they had learned this. They'd gotten into that world of learning um, social psychology and applying that to, to dating. And they still suck. And it's crazy. And I'll meet clients, like they'll sign up for courses or something, and in their pre-programmed surveys, they'll say, in 2003, I read this book, and I found this forum, and I've been reading it ever since, and, and here I am, you know. <laughs> like, what? What have you been doing? And I, I think I, I just figured it out. And one of the most frustrating things about the modern world is because of the, because of the, fact, because of the fact that postmodernism, postmodern relativism, one in the universities that I, I didn't expect this, but it won by the, the early 2000s, took over the universities. There's been a lot of empirical evidence for this now, especially now. Um, I think it's 14 to 1 uh, 
people on the left versus anyone who's not on the left. And that's trickle down because all of the elites in the world were trained in universities, top universities, right? Mostly Western universities. And they will be imparting their indoctrination of relativism. And part of relativism is that there is no good or evil. It's just your opinion. Right? It's all subjective. But you have to believe in their subjectivity. That's always the stupidity about it. So I was a philosophy student, and, and no one in philosophy who's serious about philosophy would ever, like there are, there are a few serious theorists of moral relativism, but you have to, have, you have to uh, nuance that so deeply that it's not anywhere like, anywhere close to the postmodern relativism. But generally speaking, it's really, really hard to defend moral relativism in philosophy 101, even to freshmen. And I don't, now it's, it's, the, it's just the norm. It's accepted. You don't have any uh, right to the truth any more than anyone else, et cetera, et cetera. And this has basically uh, destroyed young people or people your age. I don't know how young you are. But <laughs> I know how young you guys are. Uh, but I don't mean like teenagers. It's destroying teenagers. But it's destroyed men under 40. And that, I guess the millennials, they're screwed. They haven't thought deeply about this word that no one ever uses anymore, virtue. And it was bizarre to me when I, it took a long time for me to realize that, that they don't, I, I thought, I used to think it was just Singapore. I thought it was just like, the government doesn't want people to think about right and wrong because they don't want them to question the government and all this stuff, right? Um, no, it turns out, it's not just Singapore, it's the whole Western world. Uh, unless you purposely went to an ethics class in the philosophy department, um, you would have no reason to study the different theories of normative and uh, meta-ethics and things like this. And you would never come across this gigantic field of study called virtue ethics. And my entire uh, field was dominated by virtue ethicists. So in my little bubble in the academy, I thought everyone studied virtue ethics. I thought, I thought that like just every undergraduate in the humanities would have like at least one month of reading of Aristotle through like at least the Western virtue ethicists. But that's not the case. That's why you suck. I mean, that's why you're not happy. That's why it's so hard for you to be happy. That's why it's so hard for you to meet your own needs. Because there's a section in my dating courses like Invincible where I ask you to think about your values. And as a good, I don't know, modern person, in this world of postmodernism, I tell you, I'm not going to tell you what your values should be. That's for you to decide. But here's the process that you do it, all right? So we walk through that. You say, oh, David, blah, blah, blah. And you get it out of your system, right? And then what often will happen is if a guy is really honest with himself, he's going to put, like, power at the top, freedom, babes, right? <laughs> everyone sucks my, you know, like, everyone's kissing my, you know. Like, that's what he wants. That's what these guys actually get off on. There's no... Compassion. I never heard that ever at the top three of a guy's list. Not that I'm saying you need to, but I was just like, out of all these thousands of guys I've coached and I've seen these surveys come in, no one's ever put charity at the top. Compassion, mercy, kindness, right? Love. Unless it's the seven universal needs, right? That'll be up there. But when it's values, well, what is this? So it's okay, because I, I didn't either. I had authenticity, integrity, courage. These are very martial values, right? And uh, like that parallels the movies I like to watch when my, I'm going brain dead. You know, I just want to like lie on the couch and you know, because I worked hard all day. I just want to watch something stupid. I'll go watch like the Avengers beat everyone up. Just actually just the fighting. Right? It's that courage, right? But there, the, the, that's a virtue, of course. But we don't think of them as virtues. We, so the values as helping you 
become more attractive, uh, asserting yourself, keeping your own boundaries and all that was quite obvious. And I resisted all these years imputing values, telling them, you, suggesting values. But uh, it's gotten to the point that these, uh, on the internet, these MGTOW red pill trolls are so numerous on our YouTube comments and the Facebook comments, like they just write hashtag MGTOW, hashtag red pill, hashtag like whatever, right? Blue pill, whatever the fuck they, purple pill, I don't even know what these, all this shit. Then I'm like, okay, I think it's time to be more clear about this. The reason those guys are so pissed off is because they actually weren't clear about their virtues and values. So in other words, they lost. They, they were in a situation with a woman. She won. It's the only way he can get bitter. He's not going to become bitter if he won, right? <laughs> she won. She got half his assets, or she cheated on him and hooked up with a hotter dude, or, you know, whatever. In some way, she beat him at the mating game of evolution. She beat him. And he's pissed that she beat him. And there's no court that will punish her. And he's angry about that. So he goes online. <laughs> That's what he does. But he has no recourse. Why? Because he's just as bad as her. He just lost. He's never stopped to think about virtue. Because if he did, then he would know everything that we're about to cover. And he would be free from it. So I have a course called Freedom You. It's my best course. My, the one I'm most proud of. The one I put the most work in. And I'm trying to get clear on what it looks like. The end goal of, if you know, you have this freedom, what's it like? Well, you get all of this stuff. Freedom of self, purpose, love, all of this meaning, etc. But what's it, what is the, uh, the, the other side of it? What's that like when you wake up in the morning and you have this freedom? And a big part of it is you're free from bitterness, from being triggered, from being controlled by your emotions. And the, you, you love being controlled by positive emotions. You, you don't like being controlled by negative ones. So it's really about being controlled by negative emotions. You won't have that anymore. You'll have control over your negative emotions. And you'll have control, meaning you know how to massage them, change them, manipulate them, and you're in control. Right? You know what's happening. Not that you never feel them, because a, a life with just positive emotions is also pretty boring. Right? You need the contrast. All of this is coming from freedom. But people aren't free. None of those guys I mentioned are free. They're just victims of the mating world, of modern evolution, of how it came, to, came out. It fell out like this. In the mating world, in their 20s, women have more power, on, on average. You know, the only men who can have more power than the majority of the women are the men in the top 0.1%. Right? So they're all fighting for that. Right? Just like uh, in that movie, A Beautiful Mind, uh, Nash. Right? These are um, game theory. Right? So everyone's gunning for that, the gold. The gold feels really good, but everybody else below number one is going to get screwed, and they hate that. And they have, but they have no recourse to it because they don't have a morality. They don't have that as a clear thing that guides them. They don't have a conception of virtue or of vice. And because of that, everything gets muddled. So just this morning, uh, the afternoon will be different, but just this morning, I'm going to give you some old-style philosophy, show you how it changes your life. If you don't understand this, you'll be controlled by other things that will make your life negative. And ex exploring this and getting an understanding of it and applying it will give you the freedom of, of life, the freedom to determine how your life will go. And 
It's going to be pretty deep because we're going to be drawing on uh, ideas, philosophers, uh, wise sages, going back thousands of years. And um, one great arrogance of modernity, I was arguing about this with a friend last week, one great arrogance of modernity is ignorance of tradition. And especially from the left, they hate anything smacking of religion or old time tradition, right? And they just want to tear these things down. They're, um, you know, they, they don't like these icons. But this is obviously really bad. If you are ignorant of history, um, well, you know, you're doomed to repeat it. <laughs> so we're going to try to understand what really, really, really smart human beings over the past 1,000, 2,000, 2,500 years have said about this very issue of how to lead and live a great life. All right, so this is how we came to be as human beings. Uh, oh, it's a little bright here, so you probably can't see it as, as well as it's intended. But um, these are chimpanzees eating a monkey. All right, so they will find a, younger, a young monkey and uh, they will just tear it apart. They usually will just, one will grab an arm, the other will grab a leg and just rip it apart. And then they'll just eat it like that. Um, so they're eating from the middle of the torso. Um, red in tooth and claw is how we came to be. And a lot of the world now is like this. And this is largely because the controlling power of religious institutions has been, have been so eroded that there are no checks on, uh, on our barbarism. Whatever you can get away with, right? That's what, that's what the, uh, the morality of the, of the world seems to be these days, right? Whatever you can get away with. As long as you don't screw me over. That's why guns are so important in America. Right? The guns protect you from like, the human equivalent, equivalent of this. Otherwise, people will just take whatever they can. Right? They'll just break into your house, take whatever they want. And if you can't do anything to stop them, then why wouldn't they? Right? And if you're a woman and you have desperate men uh, and they can get away with it, they would just rape you and then leave. Right? So without uh, morality, there's no check on that. You're just relying on the police. But there, you know, there aren't enough police and uh, they'd take too long to get there. So pack a gun. Right? Concealed carry. And that's how you protect yourself from this. That's how you protect your home from invasions. You can't wait for the the county police to show up, county sheriff, 20 minutes later. <laughs> it's over by then, right? So you got to protect yourself. That's how the morality has, is now in the modern world because there's no, there's no good and evil. There's no right and wrong. There's just whatever you can get away with. And in fact, in terms of evolution and science, that's how we came to be. We are the product of killing and eating of other people, <laughs> right? There are other beings, maybe not people, <laughs> beings, all right? And... Um, the way that we, it may not be so obvious because if you were in a full-on fight with a big animal, you would probably lose, just the one of you, right? With your hairless arms and no fur and no fangs and all that. But what we evolved were brains. Okay, our evolutionary advantage was, were brains. And brains were largely evolved in terms of survival uh, value to coordinate uh, with other homo sapiens right, or other homo um, groups of people like Homo erectus or Homo whatever, Neanderthalus or whatever it is. And we could coordinate and, and we invented weapons and, and et cetera, et cetera. And over time, we've evolved to be the way we are now. So, so much of the POA world and uh, the, the guys who study mating, they're obsessed with evolutionary psychology. Like evolution is the one science that they really pay attention to. 
And the one thing from the universities that they pay attention to, evolution. So they take, so a lot of men have taken their playbook right out of evolution. So they find out, well, women are attracted to this and that because of this evolutionary story and it's adaptive in this way. So I'm going to take that. Status is adaptive. I'm going to take status, right? Things like this. I'm going to show that I'm healthy because that's an evolved, an evolved preference. I'm going to do all that because of evolution. And they, I guess, haven't stopped to ask why they got fucked over. You got fucked over, Red Pill, MGTOW, whatever these bitter men, because you, are, you, you got evolved out, right? You lost. And now you want some goodness in the world. It's too fucking late. It's actually not too late. But Well, I used to be a Christian, like a hardcore Christian. That means like very conservative. Uh, I went to seminary, um, studied with pastors, uh, all going to be pastors. I studied there. I, I did uh, New Testament Greek, Quine Greek. Um, in a, a class of just two students with one professor. It was like really hardcore. I won two awards, by the way, for Greek. <laughs> anyway, I'm just showing you how hardcore about Christianity I was. And one of the things, and, and, and a lot of this is, is informing, my, my education in those areas has in, informed everything I've done. And I'll show, it'll, it'll be quite obvious in a second, in a, in a few minutes. Um, but one of the images I was shown was the evolutionary picture. So you have um, Adam and Eve, or you know, the proto-humans at the top, of this pyramid of dead animals, ripped apart, <laughs> blood, guts, everything, right? So it's just like, and then, it, and then the, the caption for, for the seminary context was, and God said, this is good. <laughs> okay, anyway, so imagine that's actually us, right? We're the apex animal, and underneath us are all these other dead animals that we conquer, like we beat, we beat them, right? Some of them allied with us, like the dog, right? There's a, a rare case, but uh, most of the time we just, we want. Otherwise, we would be, it would be a world uh, populated by lions or bears or whatever it is. We beat them. Okay? Just, let's just get clear on that. You can't take your morality from evolution. If this is a world of evolution, it's just dog eat dog, you know, just get what you can. And a lot of people, a lot of men, haven't come to grips with that. They're just whining and bitching and taking the victim mentality on the internet because, well, women now have all this power. They can choose whoever they want. They're obsessed with this thing called, they call hypergamy. It's this bizarre pronunciation of hyper, hyper. <laughs> but that's where they're like, oh, women are just going to trade up. They're going to find the best man and they're going to leave the man that they're with if they can get an opportunity with a better man. And they're pissed. But dude, for millions of fucking years, we came as about, about as a result of that. Okay, so now you're bitching and moaning millions of years later. There's no goodness in the world. You fucked it up. Or you can understand why for thousands of years, the smartest, wisest people in the world thought it was important to think about good and evil, right and wrong. Not just because some god up on some mountain told them about it, but because of something much deeper. And it actually is scientifically going to explain how you achieve happiness scientifically. But before, you get into, before I jump to the, the scientific part, a quick uh, review, in case you haven't studied virtue before, <clears throat> of some of the great wisdom traditions of the world and their suggest the, the virtues that they suggest to you. <clears throat> so we'll start with vice, because that's the easiest for you to understand. 
All POAs understand Vice. And by the way, you know, I've, I've been in the POA world like 12 something years and uh, like associated with it in some way. And uh, uh, over 90% of the friends I made through the POA world <clears throat> have turned out to be quite vicious, vice-wise, right? They have vices. There's very little virtue. So our alliance, our friendship, was uh, an alliance. It was like literally an alliance. And once one of us is not useful to the other, then that would be the end of that alliance. Right? So that's, that's a very conditional friendship. And of course, you know, we're, we're all acquaintances and friends still. But if you study virtue and you study vice, you can see it happening. You can sense somebody's virtue and vice, right? Their level of this, how much they have it, how much you can trust them, how much you can open up to them, how much you can be vulnerable to them. We'll start with, this, with the vices. So you, you probably heard of The Seven Deadly, Deadly Sins. There's a great movie called Seven. Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow, Morgan Freeman. Very disturbing. Who's seen it, by the way? Which, oh, one. Sorry, which one. It's called Seven. Oh, okay. Just one. Oh, good for you. Seven. Classic movie. Don't watch it while you're eating. It's really gross, but um, very... It'll, that's like one of those things where it's an amazing movie, but you don't want to watch it again because it's so disturbing, right? Like I keep trying to get my wife to see it, and then I'm like, I'm not going to watch it, though. You watch it, and she won't watch it. So we'll go over these, right? Lust, greed, pride, envy, wrath, gluttony, sloth. The movie Seven actually is a really great way to help you remember all of these. <laughs> it will sear it into your memory. Uh, it's really brutal. Anyway, there's a, somebody who dies because he indulged, he or she indulged in one of these vices, according to the psychopath who does this to them. And he uses the vice to kill them. So uh, anyway, you should see it. It's pretty pretty crazy. He got, for the gluttony, I can share this one. I think this was the, one of the first ones that the, detect, the detectives found. They got this um, incredibly obese man ate himself to death. So um, at like gunpoint or something, he was just forced to eat and eat and eat and eat until his insides actually exploded. And then next to him, they find his dead body in, with a huge table of food. And next to him is this gigantic trash can where he just kept vomiting. And the guy just kept making him eat. He died from gluttony. You can imagine what the rest of these are. Lust is really disgusting. If I told it to you, you'd probably want to turn off this video if you're watching or you want to walk out. So it's pretty gross. You will remember all of the seven deadly sins after that. So these are seven deadly sins. Now, um, I've had to think as a Christian theologian, philosopher, think deeply about the relationship between these seven deadly sins. <laughs> and uh, there is one sin that is the cardinal sin. It is over, it overshadows all the rest. In fact, the devil would prefer that you um, would give up one of the other sins if you adopt this one. And if you only have this one, he doesn't matter, he's fine with you not having any of the other six. Right, so this is a very common strategy uh, in, um, in the fall of, of people that they become uh, teetotalers or something like that. Like they become very strict about denying themselves in these other areas. And then they, they take on this one vice. What is the greatest sin? What is the greatest vice? Pride. Yes, very good. Fall of the devil. This is the devil's sin, right? So... Um, this is, uh, I think, from Dante. This is the fall of, of the, uh, the devil from heaven who, because he deigned to challenge God or something like that. And anyway, he was cast out. And um, just a nice image here to get you to think about um, pride. Now, pride is a bizarre English word. It's really hard to now use pride 
in any kind of meaningful way in discussions of vice because it's, it's just too um, common now. The word that I prefer is self-centeredness. The reason is because I'm heavily influenced from my PhD studies. I did my PhD and a lot of my subsequent publications in Neo-Confucian philosophy. And uh, my favorite philosopher is Wang Yangming, he's a 15th century philosopher. And his main thing that he was attacking was vice. Uh, I'm sorry, was self-centeredness. Si yu. Si as in selfish. Yu is des desires or emotions. The, um, the desire for that, that, the self. So self-centeredness is actually uh, very perniciously uh, evil. And um, it is at the root of psychopathy. And so maybe this will be make it more obvious. Robert Hare, one of the foremost uh, researchers in psychopathy. Here he goes. Uh, Language and words for psychopaths are only word deep. There is no emotional coloring behind it. A psychopath can use a word like, I love you, but it means nothing more to him than if he said, I'll have a cup of coffee. So in other words, he's using whatever he can to get what he wants. And that's a lot of people. Like, I'm not saying they're all psychopaths, but they're, the closer you get to a psychopath, like it's a continuum, right? The, the more psychopathic traits you have, the more psychopathic you are. And in terms of just uh, the way society has gone, once you jettison morality and you, and you haven't thought about why, what you should replace it with, and instead you just go about your life. That's like everybody, right? It's like, like you, you probably haven't done a course in morality at any Deep level, I don't know, most of the world hasn't. So what do you do, though? But you have a job. Well, how did you choose that job? Did you think about good or evil, right or wrong, or bad about it? No, you just you made it, got a job, so make some money. Why do you need money? So you can buy shit. Like what shit? Food, clothes, pleasure, right? And then now, you know, you, you probably found me because you're having trouble with women. And that's, again, why are you, why? Why do you need women? Oh, because I have desires, I have, I have these carnal desires, lust, <laughs> right? And I want to use it. So give me, David, give me you. I want to suck your brain, David, <sighs> so I can go and fuck some more. I want to suck and fuck. I want to suck your brain, David, so I can fuck some women. They never stop to ask about good and evil. And is there a comeuppance? <laughs> and a lot of them, because they didn't, they, they didn't study morality, it's not even an issue for them because there's no one to ask you about these because there's no more church. There's no more institutions. Fuck it all. Hey, I'm, I'm anti-church too. I don't go to church. I'm not saying you should go to church. I'm saying you should think about the questions the church fucking asks you. What is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? And why should I even associate myself with you? You're just using my brain. Ouch, it hurts. You're just trying to get stuff from me. And you think, hey, Dave, this is fair. This is life. Well, you're right. This is life. So one day I will eat you because I can't trust you. So in America, you got, I would be packing. I would definitely be concealed carry because I can't trust people there unless I got something on them. Right? I got their insurance policy. I got their money. I got their daughter. I got their son. I got their kids I got something on them. I can trust them. They won't pull a gun on me and just steal my shit. But a lot of people, especially in big cities in America, you got to watch out. <clears throat> they could mug you. You could be standing on the side of the street and bam. And, just, and by the time you figure it out, you report it to the police. You're done already. It's red in tooth and claw. 
But I would prefer to be in a society where I don't have to worry about that. What happened in 2001? People started to worry, had to worry about that. Before 2001, they were just blithely going around. The biggest problem was the stock market. Now our problems are that the guy next to you could just open up that gun in the movie theater. I mean, this happens like once in a blue moon, right? But you're thinking about it now. What have you done to protect yourself? Nothing. Because it's evolution. You've trusted them. You're driving down the street and some psychopath could just veer off of one little painted line and kill you. It doesn't take much to be a suicide killer. I mean, you know, just plow into them. This is, we're just trusting each other. But most of society has not asked about why, what's the basis of that trust? So don't be stupid. Pack a gun. Don't be stupid. Learn how to fight. Don't be stupid. Learn how to defend your family and your loved ones. But wouldn't it be great in a society where you didn't have to? But unfortunately, you have to. This is the society now. They don't give a fuck. Seven deadly sins all over the place. Yeah, let's have some more. You know, the bad part is it was so hard to find this image. When you Google seven deadly sins, all you see are cartoons. Because there's like anime after anime. I think there's an anime called seven deadly sins. So I did put in seven deadly sins uh, theology or seven deadly sins Catholicism to find this. And it still wasn't the, the, uh, the, the stained glass thing I was looking for. But, uh, you know, people are just going to trivialize it. We do that all the time. Hey, man, it's cool, man. You know, we go clubbing. I do a joint. No big deal, right? I'm there. It's cool. You can do a song about lust and how cool it is because fuck that. I want to lust, right? Yeah, we're going to glorify all that shit. And then don't complain when you get fucked over. Let's just be wise, man. Just be wise. So we'll get to that in the, in the virtue section. But psychopaths, the closer you get to a psychopath, and the more you embrace the sins, the closer you're getting to a psychopathy, where you don't care. You, there's no compassion. There's no fellow feeling. It's just like, I'm going to get whatever I want. What happens in a love relationship there? There's actually, the theory goes, and the more you study psychopathy, they can't actually love. That's the tragedy, the great tragedy, not even of a psychopath, because they're, we think of them as killers and all that. But... Uh, you know, people who are like psychopaths but don't have malicious intent, like a sociopath. Like the way they made Sherlock Holmes look in the TV show with uh, the guy who played Doctor Strange. His name is escaping me. Benedict Cumberbatch. Great uh, TV show. I love that. But um, he's a sociopath. And he's like, I'm a sociopath. But he's not a psychopath. He's not going to go out and purposely harm people. He just get off on that. But he's a sociopath. And then closer to, you know, you get, you get narcissistic disorders. You get histrionic disorders, bipolar, borderline, bipolar is much further this way, but borderline disorders, all of these various gradations of, of uh, the lack of fellow feeling are getting you are closer and closer to psychopathy. And the more, the closer you get to psychopathy, the less you can feel love. And relationships with cluster B disorders are going to be like this. So, so what you'll see sometimes is guys in relationships and they're just trying to control the woman, right? Like you can see this in, in the various groups that we manage. Um, she's, she's going out and I don't like it. Or she's doing this with the other guy and I don't like it. And they never ask the real, the, the right and wrong, good and evil. Just, they just ask, how can I control her? Well, why should we help you do that? Why shouldn't we help 
her be free of you? Or why should we have either? Because both of you are equally bad, equally evil. Right? It's basically a psychopath asking me, how can I play this puppet better? I want to make her come to my house. How do I do that? I want to pull this string. David, where's the, where's the textbook on that? Where's the video course? I need that module. I need a module on how to turn her on. What's this string? I, it's not working very well, David. Show me how to use this string. And they never stop to ask, what's going to happen once you have all this control, you fucking psychopath joker? What's going to happen? Is there any love there? No. Well, that's the theory. They actually can't ever experience that. Because it's all about them, their selves, their acquisition of power, their acquisition of sex, their acquisition of pleasure. Well, how do we get rid of this? How do, okay, so let's say that you agree, all right, this, this sentence seems really bad. I don't want to have to be on guard all the time, defending myself all the time. I don't want to have to be the gorilla looking out or the, the monkey looking out for the chimpanzees killing me all the time. Um, I want to be smart enough that I can avoid that. But I would like to be in a society and to be with friends, like real friends, who won't backstab me if they can, just because they can get something from me. Well, what can I do about that, David? Well, then I say, wonderful, welcome to my world. This is the world that I have inhabited since at least the age of 11, when I was reading theology and philosophy books for fun as a big nerd. <laughs> of course, that was probably because I was very uh, alone most of the time. <laughs> and all they wrote about was this exact question. How do you become a good person? How do you have a good life? Not a life full of sex, money, power, and drugs, but a good life. And at the end of this, we'll ask, why would you want a good life? Hopefully it's obvious, but maybe it's not, and I agree that it's not obvious. So the first step is you can follow the vices. So for each vice, there is a corresponding virtue. As you can see, this is, uh, these are the theological vices and virtues. I just take these because, as examples, we could insert whatever from whatever tradition or whatever, if you've already thought about this, and you can think, if you've already got your own list of vices and virtues, it's great. <clears throat> just see how they match up, right? So they match up. So if you want to uh, decrease the lust in your life, you can increase the chastity in your life, etc. right? Gluttony and temperance. I'm going to be diving into four virtues that will counteract almost all the vices, including pride, the self, the excessive focus on the self. And uh, before I move on, actually, in, for the pride, <clears throat> the excessive focus on the self is at the root of the psychopathy, the cluster B disorders. It's the caring so much about yourself, about what other people think of you. Here's an interesting thing that's happened recently. Meditation has become this huge thing. Mindfulness has become this huge thing. And they are taken from uh, the Buddhist tradition and uh, the early, early Hindu Veda tra Vedic tradition. And in both of those traditions, especially the Buddhist tradition, there is a denial of the self, right? especially the Buddhist tradition, right? <laughs> uh, where you're supposed to practice these to take on these practices so that you're not focused on the self anymore. You're not attached, right? You get rid of your attachments, right? There's anatman. These are all uh, key concepts in Buddhism. And then um, the, you know, the, the West repackaged it and said, hey, you should do all these so you can help yourself, right? It becomes a self-help thing, an excessive focus on you and your self-aggrandizement, you know, your acquisition of further power in your life. It's you, 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 you. And you might think, David, yeah, it's fucking obvious. Yeah, it's, you, you, it's, it's me, 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 me. What's your problem with this? All right, so this is a really, really important question. 
And the, the reason why the Neo-Confucians focus so much on the self and the, the world focused on the self is that that was at the root not just of problems between you and others, but problems in yourself. Problems in yourself. So the self-conflicts, the inner conflicts between the warring parts that you have, the part of you like that devil on one side, the angel on the other, uh, or it could just be um, the warrior in you versus the, the one who wants the comfort in you, all of that, <clears throat> that's going to be, that's rooted in the breakage of the self because of the excessive focus on the self. Once you take your mind off of yourself and you focus on something else greater than yourself, hopefully greater, but even if you focus on something else, things go a lot smoother. This is, by the way, also the, the key to achieving flow, the flow states, right, the capital F flow. If you focus on yourself, you'll never achieve flow. If you focus on yourself, like, how am I doing right now? How do I look? Uh, or do I feel significant? Or any kind of do I questions will undermine your flow. You'll be taken right out of flow. <clears throat> Vice and virtue. So we introduce you now to virtue ethics. So this is a major field in, in the study of ethics or moral philosophy. I think it, <clears throat> as I was preparing the slides, I was like, this is going to be pretty heavy, I think. So let's put in a joke here. <laughs> of the seven virtues of the samurai, the greatest is devotion to all things samurai. I could never be bothered learning the other six virtues. <laughs> and so, of course, like in uh, Musashi Miyamoto and uh, all of these great traditions, they all have their own virtues. Right? If you ask Bruce Lee, he'd come up with a, a list of virtues, too. Right? Diligence. You know, actually, I, I, it's true that I went to... Uh, as a kid to Taekwondo class. And at the beginning of every class, we had to read out the creed, beginning and end. And I, I don't remember all of the, the character traits that we were supposed to recite, but one of them was perseverance and discipline and blah, blah. And we had like, you know, 10-year-old kids all saying this in unison. Those were the days. <laughs> I don't know, you guys still, do, I, don't, I don't think you do that anymore, right? Now it's just like, how do I break this guy's arm? Teach me how to do that, right? There's no, there's no tradition anymore. Well, what, what we've lost with that is, an understanding of why we're doing it in the first place. Because if we don't know, know why we're doing it in the first place, then we're just actually relating to each other like this. And right now, you can't eat me. That's why you're not eating me. If there's no morality. Because otherwise, why wouldn't you? <laughs> so we now move to the four cardinal virtues. Temperance, prudence, fortitude, and justice. And um, I'm just going to say a few words about each of these as suggestions for you to think about as perhaps being the sort of virtues that you might want to take on. So I guess we'll do them in this order. Uh, actually, let's go with prudence first. Prudence or phronesis is practical wisdom. It's the injunction to be as wise as serpents, you know, but as innocent as doves. But the wise of ser as serpents part, that's the prudence part. So so that you know if there's a predator or a vampire that you're dealing with. You don't go blithely, ignorantly about sticking your neck out for people to cut it. Right? So you can protect yourself and your loved ones. You know, you're prudent. You have practical wisdom. Right? This is a virtue. Learning this, learning the ways of the world, not being naive about how the rest of the world works, about how sexual uh, mating happens, about um, sexual politics, about but the way of the world, money, power, guns, these sorts of things. You know, you want to think about that. Prudence. Okay, that's, that's prudence. That's an important thing. So in the left is now the social justice warriors. They don't value prudence. 
they get mad when you're too prudent. They're like, that, yeah, that's the way of the world, but that's bad, that's wrong, why do you know that? Or the fact that you're even, you even know that proves that you have privilege and you should apologize for this privilege. And this is eventually, if you keep following this down the line, you have, you have old style Maoism, you drag them before the, the kangaroo courts. Right? So that's, that's prudence, you gotta know the way, the reality, have a really good grasp of how the game is played so you don't fall victim to it. Okay, so that's prudent. That's a, that's a pretty good thing to have. That's a virtue. That's something you should encourage in yourself and in your children. You should be looking for that for those you associate with. Are they naive? Do they value naivete as a kind of misguided innocence? All right, what about temperance? Temperance is in the old days, associated with drinking, unfortunately. Uh, but it's not just obviously drinking, it's anything. You can have the same relation that an alcoholic has to an alcohol as to anything. You can have that with sex, with, with deriving uh, like significance from ego stroking, from anything that would be, look, especially with narcissistic goals, but anything, it could, be, it could also just be food. Whatever it is that you have an excessive um, attachment to, right, uh, is temperance. Can, and how do you counteract this? Right? Modesty, right, um, oh, I mean, sorry, uh, moderateness, right, so we have gluttony and moderatio, right, that's the, the uh, Latin, right, temperance. Being able to say no to it. So if you ever feel like you're controlled by anything, try to fast from that thing. To not be controlled by anything that you decide that you don't decide to be controlled by. That's, that's a virtue. That was considered a virtue for thousands of years. Now, there are very few people that consider this a virtue. One example, actually, of someone who does is Jocko Willink. Discipline equals freedom is one of his catchphrases, right? The Navy SEAL. They're used to saying no to a heck of a lot of things. I think his Instagram feed is just his watch at 4.30 a.m. Like he just takes a shot of the time he wakes up every day. Uh, he's got a lot, he's got a lot of temperance, <laughs> at least in the physical, right? As, uh, probably in the other areas, I don't know him that well. Temperance, how can you cultivate that in yourself? Right? Can we, how can you encourage that in yourself? All right, the third is fortitude. Fortitude in, the, in the, this sense, and by the way, uh, these aren't Christian virtues per se, these are taken out of Plato, is the Republic, and then they were adopted by uh, Augustine, and Aquinas, and then um, adopted by the Christian tradition. The Christians then added, I think it's three or five more uh, theological virtues to, the, to these virtues. But these are the basic virtues. So fortitude. Fortitude is basically like guts. Do you have the courage? Right? Do you, are you able to step up in the face of fear? That's a virtue. That's something that you should cultivate in yourself. Fortitude. Are you looking for people with that? And then... Finally, we have justice, and this is usually cashed out in um, this context as fairness. Fairness, a sense of fairness. Um, the, the justice uh, as fairness is generally not anything that's prized. It's not something that's prized in the modern world. Why? Because let's say you have an advantage over someone else, and you can just take it. Well, why do we make the monkey? Why do we make it fair play for the monkey? Why would you do that? We're trying to kill and eat the monkey. Why would you make it fair? That seems wrong to them. They'll just take it and eat it. Well, that's why I say that they're evil. 
That's a vice. And I can't trust them because they're just going to wait till I turn my back and then they'll bite me. And I'm not surprised when they do because I understand them. I understand their vice. Another thing about understanding vice is understanding your own shadow, your own dark side, what you are capable of doing, that you could go back to your animal nature, that what's natural is not what's good. And I could, you can write a whole book about that, right? The movement towards natural as being a good thing, right? Like, you know, oh, actually, we will get to that in the debate between Mencius and, and Shinza, so I'll leave that for when we get, get there. It's a justice, it's fairness. Think about that. Fairness as a virtue. Due process. <laughs> Not the kangaroo courts of me too. And now we move out of the Western tradition to the Confucian tradition. And these are the Confucian virtues out of the Analects. And then uh, Mencius, who is the next generation after Confucius, took the first four <clears throat> and talked about them in terms of sprouts. I'll get to that in a second, but we can just go over what these are real quick. Uh, ren, that's the first one. Human, it's humanness, there's this horrible translation. Humaneness, maybe. It's often translated as benevolence, but ren is, you can see the, actually, you can see the etymology. On the, the radical is a person, a man, like a person, like person, <laughs> human. So it's got two lines this way. And then there's two. The feeling of, of your other, of the fe your fellow feeling, as philosophers call that that you can enter into understanding, you can empathize you know, with the other person. You have that feeling with them, Ren, right? So you, you uh, philosophers translate this as, or um, the scholars translated that as, you feel the human, humanity in the other, or right? humaneness. All right. Benevolence is also another way to put it. But these are all really deep. You could write an entire book on each of these. In fact, they have been books written on each of these. Um, so I'm going just at the surface, uh, very super, like scratching the surface of all of these. Righteousness is more like rightness, right? Like E is often translated also as justice. And um, basically it's setting things in their proper place, right? Rightness. Okay, so um, again, this is, a lot, of, a lot of it is similar with justice. Lee, and this is the most interesting one. This is one that's missing from um, the Western virtues. So Lee is a very interesting uh, term from the Chinese. It means ritual, rites. And you think, why would that ever be in a list of virtues? That, you know, you go through the motions of these rituals. Like, when you, if, if there was a ritual around drinking tea, it could be like this, like this. Then you pick it up, and when you put it down, you turn it to... Sties over, right? But in fact, we actually, that's not a real ritual, by the way. But in fact, we actually have plenty of rituals. Still, in Thailand here, we, we bow like this. And when we meet, we shake hands. Uh, sometimes we hug. These are all rituals. Uh, we say hello, and you say hello back. I expect if you don't, then it's like a snub. These are all rituals. They only make sense within the context of ritual. And if you ever want to feel the power of ritual, just stick your hand out or have someone stick your, their hand out to you, and you can feel that the polite thing that you're trained to do is to do this and meet their hand, because you would have to force yourself not to, right? Because you're trained by ritual. So why is ritual important as a virtue, though? This just seems like manners. Well, it's not, because it's actually much deeper. Uh, what ritual does is it shapes your character. So the things that you do, either physically or verbally, actually affect how you feel and think. 
So the ancients understood this. This is why they had the, the marches and these grand displays of pageantry in front of the emperor all through history. Because if you could get the subjects to uh, engage in an orderly display, that means you have order in this country, in this kingdom, in this state, or whatever it is that you have power over. And that means that you can get shit done, for one. But it also means that there's something you can count on to make the relationship between people go smoothly. Right? Otherwise, without ritual, you just evolve into, I'm going to keep going back to this wonderful image, into this. Right? Ritual helps you not to do that. So that the more powerful man bows to the, the weaker one. And they have a sense of fair play. So if you're going to go into a BJJ match with this person, <laughs> uh, you know, you'd make it competitive. Right? And uh, you, there's no bullies. That's another thing about justice and fairness. Right? Fair play, anti-bullying. Otherwise, you have a culture of bullies. And you always have to wait until the teacher shows up to break it up. Or you have to wait until the cops show up to prevent the bullies from you know, taking advantage of the weaker. And without that, if you just let the bullies bully and they win, well, would you want to live in a world like that? Because sometimes the bullies take power and they become king. And that's a shitty world if there's no goodness there. So all of these things were instituted, these virtues, to prevent those things. To prevent us from devolving into the animals. That's Li. And Zhi is knowledge. That's pretty obvious. This is a lot more like uh, prudence there. So I'm just, that one's more obvious. But I, I've written uh, an entire paper just on the virtue of Zhi in the Analects. So if you ever want to read that, Virtue Epistemology, I've written a paper on it. I can send it to you. <laughs> and then, of course, Xin, which is integrity. And this is a really beautiful Chinese character. Because you have, again, the, hu the person on, on, on the uh, left, the radical, and then you have the uh, character for word. So you're a man or person of your word. That's integrity, person of your word. And you know what helps, prevents us from devolving, not just into bullies, but also cheats and liars and deceivers and manipulators? What prevents that? Well, the virtue of integrity, of being a person of your word. And I'm that, unfortunately, I'm that way to a fault. Um, just recently, I just paid an extra $45 to a company that I didn't need to because my credit card got changed and they had my old card. And they screwed me over in a way. So I actually wrote them a strongly worded email. But at the end, I said, but because I'm a person of my word, I will call you, go through considerable trouble to call you in your central standard time and tell you my credit card number so you can charge me for something I never received because I'm a person of my word. And that's just something that I want to live up to because that's something that I know every little bit contributes to, to your character. And any time you deviate from it, degrades your character. Every little bit. This is true in Christianity, Confucianism, Buddhism, every tradition. Every little bit. Okay, so integrity is one of those things. If you say, if you say something and then you don't do it, especially when it's important to the other person, well, then you've just already eroded your virtue. And, uh, you know, when you have to get good at nightclubs and sort of this sort of thing, you've got to throw all this out the window. Because otherwise, you're not going to have any friends. <laughs> I mean, you're like, dude, are you a man of your word? None of them are. Like, they, they kind of can't be. The nightclub is, like, is a lot closer to this. Right? And guys will only be your friend until a girl gets in the way, and now you're competing about some girl, and then he backstabs you, doesn't give a fuck, because now he's in, the cool, he's in the cool table, and you're out there. Right? You know a real friend when he actually 
disadvantages himself or hurts himself in some way to help you out, right, and doesn't keep it over your head the whole time. I mean, these are things you got to think about. Otherwise, it's like this, and don't get surprised when you lose a bunch of times, or you get hit so bad you can't recover. And that's part of the reason why prudence is always in a list of virtues. Because no matter how good you are as a dove, you're going to meet some damn hawks. And if you don't know your game theory, you're going to lose. So to a hawk, you don't present as a dove. Prudence, knowledge. Of course, you're looking for people who have these traits and ally with them. Because then you can relax. They don't always have to be on your edge, checking your back all the time, looking for a Iago. You guys know Othello, right? And finally, we come to a wonderful debate that I spent uh, in my professorship, uh, entire graduate seminar, exploring with my students. The debate between Mengzi and Xinzi, and this is also paralleled in the Neo-Confucian tra tradition, in case you know it, uh, the debate between Zhu Xi and Wang Yangming. Of course, you probably don't. I'm introducing these in case you decide that you would be interested in, in them, and you can do some more reading. So now you might be wondering, well, how do I cultivate these virtues? And what's interesting is, uh, I mean, I take the example from the Confucian tradition here, but this debate has been played out in, in all of the Western traditions. But it's, it's very clear here in the Confucian tradition. It's also what I use to get good at anything, including picking up chicks back you know, in the day, 12 years ago or whatever, and without, really, without understanding it. I just thought that's how everybody gets good at stuff. I found out many years later that most people are completely ignorant of this, and they just go through the, the motions. Whatever their teacher assigns them, they do the homework, and they think they should be magically get better. But they don't understand how getting better actually works, the process of getting better at something. It's the same as the process of getting more virtue in your life, becoming more virtuous. Or if you want to become like, it was a beautiful, uh, like a, a moving um, presentation of this, depiction of it in, in, of all movies, Star Wars, the third episode, what's that one called? Where Anakin becomes Darth Vader. It's a really wonderful show. Like it starts with these little things that you understand them too. Like, oh, I feel for Anakin. Like, why is Yoda such a jerk or whatever, right? Like, why is Mace Windu such a hard ass, you know? Can't they be softer on him? You know, and they get to the end. Hopefully you've seen it, so it's not spoiler alert. We get to the end, right? And then Obi-Wan Kenobi's got to chop up his legs. Oh, shit, right? And then at the very end, he gets to redeem himself, you know, episode six. And it's, it's part of this whole process. The same process that you use to become a good person, you can use to make somebody or yourself into an evil person. You can go either way. We all have that in us. Right? It's not like we're just born, some are born with a proclivity towards one or the other, especially psychopaths, the theory goes. But you can move either way, right? especially if you put effort into it and you put your mind to it. So there are two different ways of approaching this. And uh, you can think about which one you like better. So Mengzi believed that we are at heart good. We are born good. And uh, the joke in Chinese philosophy circles, this really nerdy joke, is um, all the professors who have daughters are Mengzians, and all the ones with sons are Xunzians. And because Xunzi said, human nature is bad. So you notice this when they pop out of the womb, and they start, you know, the boys just create chaos, right? They're just like throwing things around. They're always, you know, very aggressive. And then the, the girls are a little sweet, and they just sit there, and they'll play quietly with toys, with their dolls or whatever. This is complete caricature, right? But uh, maybe that'll help you understand the difference. So Mengzi believes that we are born good. Xing, shan. Human nature is good. Shan, right? And oh, I'm getting into the Chinese philosophy mode. I just realized you probably don't know what those words are. Human nature is good. We're born with proclivities towards goodness. 
Mengzi called that the four sprouts. So we are all born with like seeds of these virtues. He specifically looked at the first four. We have these seeds of virtue, that we have a tendency towards fellow feeling, uh, humaneness. And he uses an example of, if you see a child fall into a well, or you hear a child fall into a well, won't you feel like you're immediately, uh, your immediate reaction is to go and help? That's what dogs do. They're really awesome. Dogs kick ass. They're better than humans. <laughs> Some humans are like, eh, that child. In fact, uh, one guy I follow on Instagram, John Danaher, he's one of the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu coaches in the world. He's got a great Instagram. Uh, he writes these essays on every post. And one of the posts is him at a subway stand platform in New York, like this. And he's like, how far we've come. 10 years ago, I was standing on this platform. Uh, and whatever, you know, like a times were hard back then kind of story. But then he said, um, and there was a guy standing at the edge of the tracks, and the train had to stop and wait for him, right? Like, he was literally standing looking down. And all these New Yorkers were like, come on, move or jump, man, move or jump. And he jumped. And then the whole subway car was silent. And then John Danaher was like, it's amazing how whatever, like, you know, when you confront the things that you callously say, how it sh shames everybody. And I was like, fucking John Danner, I just come here for BJJ advice, man. You give me this deep shit. Um, but that's a lot of the world now. It's cool to, to look at somebody about to jump from a fucking bridge. Like, come on, man, get out of my fucking way. I got shit to do. Jump, man, get some balls and jump. Right? And, uh, well, that's because you lack rin. Humaneness. You lack the first virtue. And Mencius said that we all have it. That's why they all stayed silent after. Because if you didn't have it, you didn't have the sprout. You'd be like, good, he's jumping. Like, can we go now? Can we, can we go? But you feel it because you had it. That's Mencius' argument. You have that in you. You've just not let that sprout grow. So the idea is when we're born, we're like little sprouts, little pieces, you know, grass. Little, and you have to water it. You have to give it the right conditions. You got to give it sunlight, water, you know, and all that. And it will grow. But if you grow this seedling in denuded ground, or like, I think the example he gave was um, a mountain that had been burned down and you try to uh, plant it in barren soil, uh, well, then it won't work. So if you take a good human being and beat the shit out of them and put them in a horrible environment, they're going to come out evil. Well, that makes sense. So it wasn't that human nature is good and always will be good. It's that you start off with the proclivities, the movement towards goodness. All right, so that's Mengzi. Now Xunzi, which was one generation after Mengzi, said, no, actually, just look at, look at our world. How can you tell me that these people are good? No, no, we have the raw stuff, but it's largely, it's just, it's just inert. It's not moving in any direction. You have to shape it. And so he came up with this, uh, the first person in Chinese history to come up with the concept of artifice or the creation of stuff. You know, so this is where we get to the, the uh, discussion about whether what's natural is good. You see that a lot now. I mean, that's all Whole Foods, billion-dollar companies. That's their model, right? Organic, it's natural. That's some. That's good, right? So everything's about the more natural it gets, the better. Like the more good it has, right? So we move back to natural diets and all this stuff. Like, but uh, actually, this is quite ridiculous because uh, no one ever wants to go back to the time before air conditioning. You know, especially in Singapore. <laughs> you know, what's natural is no air conditioning. You know, what's natural is you're fucking naked 
Right? Maybe some of you will like that. You're like, oh, yeah, here we go. Right? I don't know. But like, what's natural is you got to hunt your food. What's natural is you don't got to bet. You got to find sleep on some grass and whatever, right? That's natural. You want to go back to the state of nature? And of course, in the Enlightenment, there were some who learned about, um, they're using this as a, uh, an ideal to hold up, like the state of nature, right? But it's ridiculous. I mean, all of these innovations are not natural that have made life better, you know, more comfortable at least. Uh, medical advances, etc. Right? These are all good. Right? That's not natural. A lot of what we should give thanks for is not natural. This room that we're in, this technology that we're using, the the, the very ways that you're watching this or listening to this being here, these aren't natural. These are all result of what Xunzi would call artifice. Right? They're artificial, but they are good. So human nature is like a piece of un. What do you call it? Uh, um, a a, like uh, wood that's all curled up like you would chop off a tree. And if you want to make something of it, you've got to carve it. You've got to do some work on it. Right? So you've got to make it into something. So he talked about how to take um, a warped piece of wood and straighten it. All right? And that's the process of making somebody into a good person. So either way, the result is the same. You have some awesome thing at the end, right? The question is, where did you start off with? Did you, do you believe that we start off with some goodness in us and we have to encourage those tendencies? Great, I'm all for it. But maybe you think, nah, there's no goodness. And this is uh, Jordan Peterson's view, right? Life is suffering, life is hard. We're kind of shitty stuff. And you have to do this, you gotta take on responsibility. And you know, something like Jordan Peterson's pointing thing, right? You gotta take that responsibility, you gotta make something of yourself. Wipe the Cheetos dust off your chest and get out of your parents' basement, right? Now you've done it. <laughs> I don't know if you ever had Cheetos dust, but all right, great. So, right, so you made something of yourself. That's the Shinzian view. So Jordan Peterson is a Shinzian. But either way, this is just a debate that works out towards cultivating your intuitions or cultivating a good character so that the end product is a good human being. Now, one thing I forgot to mention is the reason uh, you may not have heard of virtue ethics is because even though virtue ethics is the oldest ethical philosophy tradition, I mean, I'm citing shit from the 500 BC, right? And of course, Aristotle from around that time as well, Buddha, these, these were all virtue ethicists. Uh, but in the Enlightenment, eth the normative ethics took a different turn and it moved into consequences. So it evaluated the good, like right and wrong, based on the consequences of an act. So here you get like trolley problem stuff, right? And this is what still a lot of Western ethicists do. Um, they, they're they're, they debate the consequences of something. So these are consequentialists. They're the ones who think consequences dictate whether something is good or bad, or right or wrong, I mean. And then another one is uh, deontologists, and they're the ones who look at rules, right? Rules, generally speaking. This is very complex, I'm just scratching the surface, but it's like rules and consequences. That's what a lot of the Enlightenment tradition uh, moved towards. That has not helped anybody at all, right? Okay, so really, like, that's how you figure out your laws, but it's not going to make a, a society where you have good people, right? So you can, here's another example about making it uh, your character rather than just your actions or whether you follow certain rules. Um, think about uh, a great golfer. Everybody could hit a hole-in-one eventually, like, you know, like as a fluke, right? You could hit, you could get it into the hole, yeah. But a golfer, ha like a professional golfer, I don't know, like Tiger Woods or whatever, has his, his whole being, his mannerisms, his movements, all that, trained so that he can get that hole in the, get the ball in the hole. Right? There's a difference between somebody who's untrained and does it 
versus someone who does it because that's who, he, who he's trained to become, to be a, a great golfer, right? versus the guy who hits it and gets it right, but as a fluke. And that's, the, that's why character is so important. Right? That's why if you just see somebody behaving because they're following some rule, because if they didn't fucking follow the rule, they'd get punished, don't trust that guy. And that's most of the world. They fall, they, like that's how Singapore runs, right? Like you, whenever you're fucking flying in Singapore, what do they do? They, by law, are told to tell you. The, the drug offenses are punishable by death. <laughs> like, okay, I'm not going to do drugs. I got it, got it, right? It's not because they think drugs are bad. It's not because there's a character trait towards it. It's because it's forced. They might have a character trait for it, but that's not because of the fucking announcement of the law, right? Now, the law might move you towards that direction, and that's a good thing. But if the only reason you're doing it is to avoid punishment, then you're not a good person. You're just a coward. <laughs> right? So either way, a virtuous person wouldn't do it just because it's a fucking rule. They'd want to know why. What's behind this rule? and What's consistent with who I am? So we get back to Munzi and Shinzi. And uh, the view of human nature, I went into that, good and bad. There are metaphors for cultivation. One is a natural metaphor of sprouts, that you give it the right environment and it will naturally grow. And the other is, you don't, it's not the environment that matters as much as the effort that you put into it, right? the deliberate effort. And uh, they both have the, the importance of ritual. This is really important because ritual just basically means what you do with your body. Your face, voice, your body, um, the, the practice that you engage in, you know, your practice. I love the way that great actors talk about their technique. Right? They, they talk about, like, even DiCaprio, to prepare for Aviator, got a, an acting coach, even after he's done all these amazing movies. And I remember watching an interview where they asked him, oh, you've done so much already, why would you need a coach? He's like, everyone could improve their technique. And uh, he's talking about like, how this coach came in, and he's like, telling him right away, like, uh, OK, you're, you're behind the wheel of this uh, airplane. I don't know if they call it a wheel or not. But um, OK, it's going down. Go. He's like, wait, hold on. i got to warm up. i got to get into it. He's like, no, just don't warm it up. Just go. He's like, OK, here we go. Um, I thought it was awesome, because he's focusing on the technique, the practice of it. It's something that you do every day, all the time. Now, the technique of being a good person you never, you never rest from that. The moment you're awake, and maybe even while you're sleeping, for all we know, but the moment you're awake, you're already practicing either moving towards becoming a better, a, a gooder, a more good person, or a more evil person, or a more bad person. Which is it going to be? And for many of us, it's been like this, and maybe downwards, right? Maybe upwards, who knows? But are you doing it deliberately? Is it a practice? Ritual is to help you do that. So in ritual, you go through the emotions that will force you into taking on the characters you want. Like a great example, again, is Jocko with his Instagram feed where he takes a photo of his watch every morning. Usually like 4.30 or 4 a.m. that guy wakes up. And it's a, it's a ritual. It's a ritual to reinforce the life and the character that he wants to have, that he wants to be. So in either case, you get through it to it by the ritual of in the case of Mengzi, you know, getting into the sunlight, getting the right um, watering and getting the right soil conditions and all that as an example, right? So what would that be in your life? The conditions of your life. It could even be like your bed, but also your home, the people that you associate with, who you see on a day-to-day -day basis, who you hang out with regularly, your peer group, etc. What you do for a living. How is that making you into a person who's more good? Building your character.
Right? That would all be under Mengzi's thing. He's looking for the rituals that you're going through in your life. Are you just coming home and down in a whole bottle of whiskey to drown your damn sorrows? That's a bad ritual. <laughs> that will guarantee that something else happens to you that's very bad. Anyway, and the same with Shinzi. Shinzi is a big, big ritual because, in fact, even the shaping of the wood is a ritual, right? Repeated movement over and over and over. That creates the good character. And uh, knowing the good. Well, moral epistemology. I'll skip that for now. But if you want to read more about moral epistemology, I've written a, an entire awesome paper on virtue epistemology. So in case you want to know. So now there's a word that I think is the most useful for this. And I first learned it as a PhD student from the top professors in the world in Chinese philosophy debating this. And there was a word that kept coming up as a model, like the, the, the framework, right, by, by which they describe all of these theories in Asian philosophy and Aristotle, you know, early Greek, <clears throat> theories of how to be a good person. And it's a word that I use just like I thought everyone knew it. I think most of you know it, but just in case, I'm going to just go through it real quick here. Moral connoisseurship. To be a connoisseur is to have well-developed tastes. We talked about this a little bit. I teased some of you yesterday. <laughs> yeah. So developing your taste, that's what it's all about. That's what character is about. So you're wondering, how can I, I get this all the time now, because I've been harping on, you know, she cheated on you, you, you idiot, you should have figured it out, right? Like, I won't say you idiot, but, you know, you got to learn. He's like, how do I, how can I tell? How can I tell if she's good or bad? I'm like, what? Like, you can't tell Thanos versus, I don't know. I guess some people would be like, Thanos is a good guy. I know a lot of girls like Loki, because they're warped, you know? <laughs> They like that bad boy. But then again, you know, if Thor was just going through the motions, the immature Thor. But anyway, I digress because the Avengers preview just came out yesterday. I can't. I think I watched it seven times last night. So, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> connoisseurship. Uh, where was I going? I went on a tangent. Forgot where I was going. Um, oh, right. So it's about. Uh, so you. So a lot of people they can't tell the difference between good and bad. Or they can't tell when somebody is trending towards good or evil. This is the reason why this is so worrying is because if they can't tell it in somebody else, they can't tell it in themselves. And that's why I know they haven't been thinking about it. They haven't been asking themselves on a day-to-day -day basis, should I take this job will it, to make me, will it make me a better person? No, they're taking the fucking job because it's going to make them some fucking moolah, man. And if they, would do, if they could bend over backwards and uh, take it up the ass and get even more money, they would. But no one's offering them that job. <laughs> But they would. A lot of dudes, they'd be prostitutes, right? To, to, to hot women, they do it. I mean, imagine that, I get paid to have sex with a hot woman. What the, they all do it. But, you know, women are like, oh, man, I can have sex with a not disgusting guy and get paid X amount of money. And they still wouldn't do it. So they've been forced since young to think about how to deal with these sexual advances. But most dudes have not. They haven't had to wrestle with good or evil because they didn't have the freedom to be either. They just follow the rules. They live in the mom and dad's house, mom and dad's rules. Then they go to college, they start fucking around, like literally, about everything, right? They start doing all this dangerous stuff. Well, if, if you're adventurous, unless you're super controlled, right, by your parents and you have full of fear, and then you just stay at home and don't do anything. I get that too, a lot of that. But anyway, that now at some adult point, you ask yourself, what is goodness? And, and can I, how can I elevate that in my life? How can I encourage more of that in my life? Okay, now you're at this, now you're at this slide. It's the same as appreciating art. If you haven't developed your taste, the, the more you develop your taste in one area, the easier it is to develop your taste in other areas. And morality is a taste. You develop a taste for it. That's why you're blind to it. 
That's why the average person who walks into an art gallery can't tell. Like me, I can't fucking tell art gallery. I mean, one of my uh, dissertation committee members was a, the, uh, the main guy in art history. So I had to sit in on some undergrad classes. So I learned some stuff about Chinese art, and most of it was just the history of it. I can't tell the difference between a replica, right, and the real thing. I, I wouldn't know. I, like, I'm sure I really want to have the freedom to do that maybe when I'm older and, and actually take a proper art appreciation class. But it, it also applies to jazz. That was the first thing that I had to learn as a connoisseur. First of all, I loved the sound. I loved the whole culture around it when I was like 12 years old. Really got into it. That's what got me into saxophone. And I pursued that seriously, like an hour and a half, two hours a day practicing. And at that age, that's quite excessive. Um, and, and I got really good at it. And I found that very few people could understand jazz. What I was hearing, they weren't hearing. And then I'd meet somebody who's far more advanced than me, and then they were telling me what they were hearing. I'm like, wait, play that back, because I didn't hear that. And then I hear it. Right? There's this one time um, in Montreal, this big jazz fan, he didn't play any instruments, so he was just a fan, so I was really shocked. My favorite CD, we actually had CDs back then, popped it in, Joshua Redman, it was on his second album, Wish. And there was this part where in that song, which is a beautifully lyrical song, and it's just, it's just instruments. And then the drummer goes, bum, bum, and doesn't touch those again. And he's like, oh, that was just beautiful. I'm like, what? And I played it back like, dum, dum. oh, shit, I missed that. And then there was another thing that the drummer was doing. He, then he switched it. At that point, it went, bum, bum, and didn't touch that, that instrument again, that percussion instrument. I was like, damn, that guy brought in that just to play those two notes that time. And that, that, uh, that guy picked it up. I didn't pick it up. I listened to that song so many times before and I didn't pick that up. And there's so many other things. Like he's like showing, showing me the harmonies. Like, man, there's so much complexity there that I was just like, yeah, this is a good song versus understanding what's really there. And the more you listen, the more educated you get, the more you know what to listen for. And uh, when you're playing, here's another example of how you develop your connoisseurship. When you're playing in the middle of a jazz band, it is really fucking hard to hear all the instruments, like to listen, to pay attention. You hear, you get the beat, right? The beat's there, you know the bassist is laying it down, but you don't really pay attention to the bassist if you're the, the instrumentalist. And the piano, he's laying down the chords, so you're listening for your cue to come in, and then boom! And your instrument is so much louder than everyone else, that it takes years for a guy to be able to play while listening. You know, that's why the monitors are so important. So you can hear what everyone else is doing. You've got to respond to them. It's fucking hard. Opening your ears. It's years and years and years of practice and experience and attunement. And just oh, play it again, play it again, play it again. Listen deeper, listen deeper, listen deeper. All, and then I, I wanted to bring this one to you for a connoisseurship. Think of an acquired taste that you acquired. That means that at the beginning you didn't like it. The more you got into it, you really liked it. Almost all tastes that people really are obsessed about really love are acquired tastes. You all, most of you grew up in Asia. I didn't. My first time trying sushi, I was 11. And uh, I hated it. It's slimy. It's raw. Like, it's gross. <laughs> like, I was 11. So this was 1987. Okay, 1987, there's no sushi restaurants in Toronto, right? Maybe two or three, right? So no one eats sushi, right? But we were in Japan with the family. And Wakui-san, uh, I don't know, fucking like uh, uncle or somebody other. And he gave us the sashimi, us kids with a fucking green thing, right? And I told my, I, I tasted the green thing. I'm like, oh, God, what is, and then my, my older sister didn't see me do that. I'm like, hey, Mel, this is coleslaw, like in KFC, right? You get that green shit, it's coleslaw. She's like, oh, she takes a spoon, gets it, and I'm like, oh, she runs to the toilet. I'm just like, yeah. So, my parents still tell that story to this day. Uh, sorry, Mel. Anyway, <laughs> I was playing around with wasabi, but uh, I couldn't stomach that stuff. 
But then, like, three years later, it was my favorite food. Like, seriously, if I had to splurge, or, like, my parents, like, say Japanese, like, yes, we're going for sushi. It's the best stuff ever. I hated it at first. Jazz is going to be one of those things. If you go deeper and deeper, you will appreciate it, and it will be one of the, your favorite things. Um, you know, I think that if you want to be um, in, uh, I don't know, comfortable in upper crust society or because a lot of you guys are uh, looking to how do you like elevate your lifestyle? How do you uh, meet attractive women? <clears throat> wine tasting is really easy and awesome and fun to do. You can get a wine tasting class for like 30 bucks, right? And they give you like a flight of wines. There's somebody telling you what notes you're supposed to pick up on. You swish it around in your mouth. You get the, you stick your nose in that baby and you get, you waken your tongue and your nose, right? So and you get two senses in one. All the other, a lot of the other connoisseurships are just one sense. So food appreciation, wine appreciation, whiskeys, gins, whatever. It happens to be alcohol because people like that, but it could be anything. It could be any kind of food, any, any kind of taste. These are all analogies. They're not, they're just like analogous to morality, okay? So I'm not actually telling you to become um, a wine taster or anything. You can do, you can do, you can do coffee, all right? That's fun too. You just, and you spit it out, right? Whatever it is, I'm not telling you to do it. I'm just saying the more connoisseurship you develop in your life, the easier it will be for you to understand how to develop a taste for morality, to be able to see it clearer and to appreciate it when you see it, to be able to pick it out of the environment of the reality. Uh, so the Neo-Confucian philosopher Wang Yaming, my favorite, used to say it like this, that um, the morally good person sees reality differently. So he'll approach some moral quandary. A man has beaten his wife or something. And the, the Neanderthal, the, whatever you call it, the barbarian, comes and just sees a man beating his wife. Right? And then Tony Robbins or whatever, right? Like the moral connoisseur comes and sees, okay, hold on, what's happening? Let's stop this. Let's... Tell what's this about, right? And, and goes deeper and is able to discern more, maybe immediately discern it, be able to pick out, to, to see the moral principles in a situation. And um, that's something you train your eye for. And I mean, morality is your eyes, your ears, your senses, your heart, everything. So um, moral connoisseurship is the way that you're trying to develop your intuitions, your senses, your attunement to it, your awareness of good and evil of, of, where, of when somebody is acting out of um, virtue <clears throat> versus you know, just doing it because they're forced to do it. And the reason why this is so important to you, like you might ask, why should I be good? That's one of those philosophy 101 questions. Why be good? You know, because if after all, if I'm good and then all that happens is I get eaten, well, that's no good, right? I don't want to be eaten. So why be good? Because that looks like I'm just becoming a weak dove. Well, of course, I've already addressed, partly addressed that by prudence and um, knowledge here. Uh, but more importantly, it's for your sake internally. Aristotle said in Nicomachean Ethics, for to constitute happiness, eudaimonia here, uh, the well-being, like flourishing, there must be, as we have said, complete virtue and a complete life. You can only find happiness, fulfillment, well-being, flourishing with virtue. And why is that? Well, I've already presaged that. I mean, I've already introduced it here that the psychopath doesn't actually love. He's not able to feel that because in order to feel love, you have to feel vulnerability. You have to be able to feel your pain. Otherwise, all you're doing is relating to other people like this. And then there's only gradations of this. Am I a good puppet master or a poor puppet master? David, teach me to be a better puppet master. And I was always wondering, like, for so many years, why, is the, why do I have this ah feeling whenever I get those types of questions? 
It's because they're asking me to help them be more evil. They're using me to make them more evil. And that's when I realize, oh, well, that's why I'm resisting this. And I will say no anymore. No, I will not give you limitless. The only people who get to have limitless, you have to buy the whole thing. Right? That's like when Neil Strauss, he should have said, when the interviewer asked him, uh, do you want to take back the things you did? Do you, would you prefer, do you regret writing the game? He's like, no, it's something that I did in the past. It'd be out there. Um, but the interviewer said, would you suggest that you package the game with the truth? It's like, yeah, okay. That's what you should do. That's what I would do now. If you are going to use those tools, which is going to increase your prudence, you better fucking have the other virtues. Or now I've just equipped Hitler. You know what I mean? I've just made a person better at deceiving and manipulating others. Okay, so virtues are, are the only way to find love. Because somebody who is only vicious can't actually love. <clears throat> well, how does this link up to science? So our lives are like pretty crappy in general. I agree with Jordan Peterson on this. Uh, our lives are much more comfortable because of technology like air conditioning. Uh, but uh, I don't know how much air conditioning has actually improved the happiness of people. Uh, I think people were equally happy before air conditioning, but you can't go backwards, right? Now that you got air conditioning, you can't go backwards. But remember the days before, I, remember, I know you guys have relatives in Singapore who lived before Air, or where air conditioning was so expensive, you could only have it at the office, right? And you, but you're still happy. You can still find love. You still had kids and did all that stuff. Like, not you, but your parents or whatever. And, uh, well, this is the trajectory of life. You're born and you die. And in the middle, you hope to have some fun. And then you hope to have enough money that you can keep yourself alive and survive before you naturally die. That's life, right? And life would be better if... There was someone else to share it, wouldn't it? Right? Especially if you have an amazing life. If you have a shitty life, then maybe it's best to be by yourself. Okay? But I don't know. Maybe if you were stuck in jail for 50 years, it'd be better to have a roommate. I don't know. I, don't actually, I haven't thought enough about that particular. But, but, like, okay, but things are going great. Everything is even better when it's shared. You got something good. You got a great suite. Right? Who needs three bathrooms in a hotel? Who, who, you can shit in one, pee in another, you know, put your stuff on the other one. But you have someone else, it's so much more fun, right? You're sharing it. Sharing it doubles or actually compounds your happiness. So this is clearly something that tugs at us more, right? That, and you already know this. I don't have to repeat the inner child work, why um, we have a need for love and connection, why that's built into us as homo sapiens. <clears throat> and uh, you kind of just intuitively understand why this is a more meaningful and full life than just you by yourself growing old and dying. <laughs> okay, so hopefully you get that. <clears throat> but even better than that, especially from now we bring the science in. Well, this can be explained by science as well, but we bring the evolution in. From an evolutionary perspective, this is a failure. Why? Just from evolution. It's not a failure from any other perspective. But for evolution, it means they didn't pass down their genes. So uh, the, whole, the only purpose of our our bodies, from a biological perspective, uh, is to, as a, as a vehicle, to pass on our genes. Right, so, um, the, what's interesting too is, your life is happier with a family. And, and the Asians are like, yeah, that's what we've been saying for thousands of years. 
And, and it, it's actually, it's interesting because to come to grips with that, to terms with that, like as a Western educated person, um, that the family unit, whatever benefits the family unit will benefit your happiness. Now you might think that's stupid, that's bizarre, that makes sense. Well, think about those sci-fi movies where they take babies and put them in a school, like, you know, like they do with the X-Men, the movie coming up, right? And, and it's supposedly that's better for the kid. Right? You, can, you can teach them stuff, you can turn them into soldiers, you can do whatever you want with them. And there's no family there to mess with them. You can brainwash the fuck out of them, right? And they're awesome. They're super soldiers and all this shit, right? You can do that. Do you want to be that kid? I know some of you may be like, yeah, I want to be a fucking super soldier. Make me into the Scarlet, what's your name again? Black Widow, yeah, that's what they do with Black Widow. Let's, I'll be a Black Widow, sure. Right, but you don't actually want the bad stuff, right? Wouldn't it be better if Black Widow could have been Black Widow and had a family? She would say yes, right? Because she wants one with the Hulk. Oh man, such a nerd with Avengers. Fuck, trying to not get into that. Okay, so your life is qualitatively better as a family, but also from an evolutionary perspective, it's superior. That's why all of virtue is actually evolutionarily better. Now you might, like, having a virtuous life, being a person of good character, and it shouldn't matter to a person of good character, by the way. So if you're a person of good character or trending that way, uh, this is not a motivation for you to continue, okay? Being a person of good character. You should be a good person of good character because it's good, not because it gets you ahead in the evolutionary game or race. But it does. Okay, that's the science part. Why is that a good thing? Why be good? Well, if you, like, generally, the pe people who ask that are these types of people who are, like, trying to just get ahead. Right? They just want to get ahead. More money, more bitches, more, more cars, more whatever. Like, they want to get ahead. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to get ahead. Right? They'll do it. They're like, why should I be a good person? Well, this isn't supposed to motivate you to be a good person. But from a science perspective, the reason is because a good person will raise a happy family. And a happy family, a happy family is the key to all the good stuff, right? So you could just, you could beat your kids, I guess, and force them into like slavery of some kind. And they, they, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll probably get knocked up and have more kids, right? And I guess you can, can perpetuate the cycle of, uh, of, of red and tooth and claw. I mean, you could be raised in a society like this, right? And still have babies. But life is so much better and the science has proven You'll live a longer life if you have love in your life. You'll live a longer life and a more meaningful, fulfilled life because you have lots of positive emotions instead of all that stress cortisol in your system eating away at like acid. If, you're, if you've got love and happiness in your family situation, among your loved ones. And <clears throat> this is, from the scientific perspective, why we have virtue. Right. And from an individualist perspective, you won't get any of your emotional needs met without it. You'll always just be empty. Think of a life that is lived to pursue the vices. Right? That's, the, that's, that's what actually a lot of guys who turn to pick up stuff want. They're like, make me more bad. I want to be the bad boy. Make me more bad. How do I swear more? How do I do all this other stuff more? I want to be a bad guy. Okay, well, yeah, especially for nightclubs and shit like that. You'll, you'll be sexier. 
but you're moving in this direction. You're focusing excessively on yourself. And maybe they were never actually good. They just sucked at being bad. <laughs> so they're bad people who needed to learn how to be better at being bad. Um, so they were always self-centered. They just sucked at it. Right? So now you made them better devils. And the research shows they actually can't love. So maybe I should just give up. <clears throat> but I'm hoping that some of them, most of them, are not actual psychopaths. <laughs> it's a pretty small part of the population. But they're just naive. They don't have the virtue of prudence. And so now I have um, pulled back the veil and shown you what your life will be like pursuing the vices. It will be an empty one and a short one, generally. Shorter one. You might still have a long, evil life. And you could have a short, amazing life or a long, amazing life. Either way, it's going to be fucking amazing if you have love in it, full of love, full of goodness. And many of us struggle because of this, right? Because of some shit that happened to us when we were kids. But many of us struggle because we think that we won't be happy unless we have some baller life, right? That's, that's probably the, the main uh, benefit, right? Guys are looking for from a sales page, a POA sales page. A baller life, the Dambozarian life, right? Bitches and boats and planes and booze and what else? Fancy clothes, I don't know, lots of people like kissing your ass. That's what you're all looking for. I know that's like that... Uh, um, what people took away from that movie, Crazy Rich Asians, a lot of them, like drooling over that big house. And imagine if I were that rich, oh, I could fly in a suite on an airplane. Oh, then life would be great. Then life would be great. No, you motherfucker. No. Life is great when you are virtuous. That's what the philosophers have been saying for thousands of years. Now, of course, you can enter the fray and debate. That's also what we've been doing for thousands of years. Unfortunately, in the past 20 years, that debate has stopped. The debate now is there is no good or evil or right or wrong or bad and all that shit. It's whatever you take it. So don't judge anyone. Right? Don't judge the psychopath. You don't know what they're, you know, of course they do judge. I judge a lot. But it's not up for debate. So now at least if we debate it, you're on the right track. And I propose to you that virtue is scientifically proven just from, even actually, even just from logic, from what we know already of the science, to be beneficial in a great way to you as an individual and obviously to your genes, your progeny. <clears throat> and to think again about, do you want to lead a life where you kick ass in the middle and then you die alone or surrounded by people who don't actually love you? They're just there because they're like that Anna Nicole Smith scenario. I'll just use her as a funny example. <laughs> Waiting for you to die. Or to have love. Or even more, to have flourishing. To prevent this from passing down to another generation. By that, the science is unequivocal. On the number one secret to happiness, according to the 80-plus year Harvard study uh, led by Robert Waldinger, is the quality of your relationships. That's scientifically proven. And it makes sense now if you look at this. You can't have high-quality relationships unless you have virtue. Because otherwise, the only thing keeping you from turning into this in your relationships 
is that you got something on the other guy. So he's not going to backstab you yet. And that's not a great way to live. That's a stressful way to live. That's a hard way to live. That's a brutish way to live. <clears throat> so I'm not saying I'm in any way virtuous. I would like to be more virtuous. <laughs> Let's put it there. So I invite you also to embark, or you probably already are, right? To continue on your journey and accelerate your pace of becoming more virtuous by becoming a moral connoisseur.